Well, as you're very aware at this point, um, I'm here this morning because Pastor Gary is not. Um, we, we have an understanding, and to some degree it's unspoken, that uh, regarding announcements and regarding preaching messages, and uh, that agreement is that if I'm not here for some reason, Pastor Gary covers my responsibility for announcements, which I'm very grateful for. And the other part of that understanding is that I have an opportunity to preach on any weekend in January, <clears throat> any weekend in January when that weekend includes 60 degree weather and snow at the same time. <laughs> so the fleece received. Um, now I'm actually really glad to be here and thankfully the Lord had been preparing this within me for the last little while. And so when this opportunity arose, um, there wasn't any panic associated with it. I'm gonna share from a passage this morning that will likely be very familiar to you. Many of you, most of you have probably heard this passage taught before. Uh, it's from Mark chapter 10. And it relates to the rich young ruler and it is probably familiar. And there's a risk when, when teaching or preaching from a familiar passage, and, and the risk is this, that you may also be so familiar with this that you think that you've already drawn conclusions or you have an understanding about what this passage is already about. And so you may tune out you may also realize that you're not a rich young ruler, and so you think that you don't have to pay attention to this. This is not for you. So that's another possible risk. The third is <clears throat> that the theme of this message seemingly has to do with eternal life. And again, my belief, my hope, is that most of us have already made that decision with regard to our eternal life and we are in a position of being saved. And that's a great thing, but that might also make you think, well, then this message maybe is not so relevant to, to any of us who are already in that position related to God. <clears throat> well, I'm gonna suggest to you there's something more in this passage. There's something more for you, there's something more for me, and there's something more for us together in this. And with that in mind, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, if we, as we have already prayed for Pastor Gary's physical heart, for healing and for restoration, Lord, we, we present our own hearts to you this morning. We ask that you would prepare us to receive your truth as we seek you in your word. We pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see, a mind to perceive and discern and to understand, and a will to apply whatever it is that is true and worthy of consideration, Lord. And we ask these in Jesus' name. 
So the passage is from Mark 10, beginning with verse 17. But before we jump into those particular verses, it's, it's always a good thing to understand the context in which the, the passage is being presented. Earlier in this chapter, Jesus is in a bit of a discussion, probably more like a debate with the Pharisees, um, discussing the finer points of divorce. And, and you can imagine how that discussion might have gone. And then the second or next portion of the, the chapter deals with Jesus actually rebuking his disciples or his followers for restraining or not allowing children to come to him so that he could minister to them, that he could bless them. And I think it's with that, that that's actually a very appropriate introduction. I'll read this last portion of what Jesus says to his followers. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And this is relevant for what we're about to study as that same concept is being applied to an individual. <clears throat> the rich young ruler. And let's begin with verse 17. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all of these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and he loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. I'm going to pause for a moment and share a personal story, and there's risk in this too. I realize my family has learned to consider it risky when I start to share personal stories. But many of you <clears throat> know that I am the product of the South. I grew up and was trained and expected to be polite and kind and gentle and overall a good guy especially in public. When I turned 16, I had earned enough money to, to buy a car. It was a 1965 Volkswagen Beetle that I purchased for $550. The good news is that that summer after I purchased the car, I was working at a gas station, which allowed me to do some work on the car as it needed a lot of work, and I could do this during downtime um, at the station. And one particular um, improvement or repair that I made to the car was to change a gas line, a short little gas line that linked the carburetor to the engine. And I did that one afternoon, and that night I drove home, 
And I thought I smelled gas. But then every night when I drove home from the gas station, I smelled gas. It was my cologne for that summer. But I didn't really think anything of it. The next day, a hot summer Atlanta day with temperatures up in the upper 90s, I was driving back to work at the gas station. And I smelled gas again. And this time it was a little more alarming, but more alarming still was a sudden sound of a gust or a burst that was behind me. And I looked back and confirmed there was black smoke pouring from the back of my car. At that point, I was near work. The engine had quit. And I coasted into the first driveway, which is another gas station, not the one that I worked at, but just one, a couple down, and pulled in, quickly stopped the car, got out and ran to the office with the hope of getting a fire extinguisher to put the fire out. Well, to my dismay, when I walked in the office, there were two other people in line ahead of me. But being the gentle, polite, kind, thoughtful, good guy I was, I waited in line until those people finished what they needed to do. Thankfully, it didn't take too much time. I got to the counter and explained to the fellow behind the counter in the gas station what was going on. And, and he looked over my shoulder and sure enough saw the black smoke that was billowing outside in the gas station parking lot. And he didn't listen to another word I had to share before grabbing the fire extinguisher and going out and putting out the fire, which I was very thankful for because it meant that my car wouldn't be destroyed. I was even more thankful that the gas station didn't blow up and there was no pillar of fire, but I was more thankful still for the fact that I was not the focus of the evening news that night. And I share all of this because sometimes being good is not great. Sometimes being good can actually be foolish. Sometimes being good can be disastrous. And with that as the example or illustration personally, I hope that will make sense regarding what we're about to discuss this morning. So let's go back to scripture. <clears throat> what do we know about the situation. Well, we know there was a man who approached Jesus and he did so very intentionally. He ran to Jesus. And when he arrived, he knelt down. The, the running would indicate an urgency, a high desire. He was inspired to get in front of Jesus. And when he did get in front of Jesus, he knelt down which was an act of, of reverence, was an act perhaps of, of worship. And then he refers to Jesus as good teacher, which would indicate further a degree of, of honor or respect that he was giving to Jesus. And it was at that point that if you put yourself in the man's mind, if you can go there for a moment and just imagine what was going through his head? And I'm guessing as he's running to get close to Jesus, he's thinking, I have questions. And I've been watching you, 
Jesus. I've been listening to your words and I think you have answers. And I want answers. I need answers. So good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, Jesus responds in the same way that he responds to others that ask questions. And he does this so cautiously and carefully and thoughtfully. He asks a question in return. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Understand that Jesus knew at the beginning of this conversation where it was going to, to go. So he asked this question in, in a way that sets up the rest of the discussion. So G Jesus knows where he's headed. The man doesn't quite know yet. So upon asking the question, he follows that quickly and says, and he lists the, the commandments. And listen to these again. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. But note here, this is an incomplete list. There are only six that are noted here. It's the last six of the Ten Commandments. They have to do with our relationship with each other. And, and certainly we're expected to hold those close. And he obeyed those. He had obeyed those well. Jesus asked him to respond to the six, knowing that he had held to those closely. But what about the first four? That you should have no other gods before me. You should not worship graven images. You shall not take the name of the Lord in vain. That you should honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. Well, the man proudly responds to Jesus' question when he says, you know the commandments. He lists the six and the man knows in his heart. He says, teacher, he declared. You can imagine he's getting, standing a little taller now. All these I have kept since I was a boy. That sounds familiar. Well, Jesus anticipates this response again, knowing where this is going. And what does Jesus do? He looks at him and he loves him. And then Jesus says one thing, one thing you lack, go and sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. Actually, there are three things that are listed there. First, to sell. Second, to give. And then third, to follow. Jesus could have very easily reduced this, summarized this and said, said, this is great that you've done all these things so well, but you really need to acknowledge God. <clears throat> you need to seek him first, not just your own wealth and well-being. Above your wealth and above your exemplary behavior, you're still lacking something. But because he had many possessions, or maybe better said that he was possessed by his possessions, sadly, the man turned and walked away. One thing, just one thing, but the man had chosen to worship wealth 
rather than God. He had followed the six commandments and he had followed them diligently, he had followed them with discipline, and he had done a really great job with the six. He had handled the public relations really, really well. As far as the godly relations, not so much. And to be clear, you don't have to be wealthy to worship wealth. That worship can also come in the form of covetousness. It could come in the form of envy. It could also come in the form of jealousy for wealth. And don't miss this point, that the point of this passage is not to bash wealth or the wealthy. I've actually heard that taught before from these passages. That's not the point, or at least not as I see it. As I read this, there's something more related to this, and that something more has to do with this one thing. And this one thing for this one man happens to be his wealth. Let's return for a moment to this word, good, that the man used to address Jesus, or maybe to define Jesus. Because I think this is a pivotal point in this passage. When the man says, good teacher, he reveals a lot about himself and his perspective on the world and God's kingdom. The man had spoken respectfully, although he was not likely naming Jesus as God because he used a Greek word for good that is athagos. And athagos just simply means pleasant or kind. So he's recognizing Jesus as a pleasant and kind teacher, which is not a problem, but it is obviously incomplete. This is the basis of Jesus' correction. It's why he stops the man and says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Because by God's definition, he is the only one that is good. We define good as, as reasonable mediocrity. Maybe lukewarm, tepid, okay, acceptable, but in contrast, how does God define good? We can see this most clearly when we look back in scripture and see the moments in time where God actually uses the word good. And one of the clearest examples of this comes from the creation story in Genesis chapter one, when God goes through the litany of six days, with each day creating something of significance, whether it was land, light, water, plant, animal, man, with each of those, after he had completed that creation, what does he say? It was good. Not in a pleasant or kind way, it was good. Really, really good. The, good, the word good here is from a Hebrew translation, tov, or, uh, spelled T-O-V. And tov actually means celebrating the fullness 
or the goodness of God. Very different than the concept of just something that's pleasant or kind. There are other scriptural references that are familiar, but here are these where either God defines himself or someone else defines God according to this word good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will. And then finally, well done good and faithful servant. As we rely on our own efforts and our own goodness to try to be better Christians, we can so easily fall into two categories. First is the underachiever. And these folks are marked by, or they prefer perhaps, a sliding scale according to their own standard of what is right, what is wrong, what is good. They measure themselves relative to others. They prefer grading on a curve with a goal of simply passing. They seek to achieve a minimum standard of whatever it is that they're trying to do. Contrast that with the overachiever who strive for and society rewards what is best. Not just good, but what is best. A plus, as opposed to a B. And on that note of A plus, I'll share just a a really quick story. This is where my family cringes a little bit because my youngest daughter, who all of us would recognize to some degree as as an overachiever, um, was filling out an application that required her to put down her blood type. And and this as a young 20-year-old, she didn't know what her blood type was. So she thought for a moment, knew she needed to fill in the blank, so she put down A positive. And when she told us this, we asked, well, Hayden, you're not O positive, or you're not A positive. Why did you put that down? She said, because it sounded best. (laughs) Again, an example of when good, or even best, may not be great, because obviously that was not gonna go to a good place. But overachievers also set standards of a GPA of 5.0, on a 4.0 scale. Overachievers seek to graduate magna cum laude or summa cum laude. The problem is that for overachievers, there is a desire or a passion or pressure to perform. And with that comes a certain level of anxiety. As further evidence of the difference between our good and God's good, we often compensate for our mediocre good by inflating good by using other words, other superlatives, filling in what might have been good with fantastic, incredible, amazing, spectacular, phenomenal, 
outstanding. We do these, or we share these sometimes to compensate because we realize that, that our good is not enough. God measures goodness by an absolute scale according to his perfection and not, thankfully, thankfully not according to our anemic good, better, or best. The same is true beyond salvation. And this is where this passage becomes relevant beyond just seeking and attaining eternal life. Following salvation, we are given a capacity for something that if you go to seminary, you might learn the word is sanctification. It's a big word. A lot of people have paid a lot of money to be able to use those kinds of words effectively, but it simply means being made holy. Most importantly, it is God who makes us holy. And we can attempt this righteousness on our own if we choose to, or by our own merit if we want to, or we can receive holiness or sanctification as a gift, as God intended it. It's important to note here that recognizing this gap, this separation between our good and God's good, God recognizes that and he bridges that gap, thankfully, graciously, gloriously, by the provision of his son, Jesus Christ, who was sacrificed, not because he wasn't good, he was perfect, but sacrificed so that our imperfection could be bridged by his perfection. So we celebrate that fact, that God just didn't leave us in our lowly state of our own goodness. According to God's standard, we will never, never measure up. Never sufficient to, to inherit eternal life, nor sufficient to be able to enjoy the process of sanctification on our own terms. With that in mind, let's finish the rest of this passage beginning with verse 23. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, after the man had left, sadly, head down, forlorn, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Jesus' words are challenging. The disciples were amazed, they were astonished. They were probably also upset and to some degree they were dismayed. Who then can be saved? With you and me, 
it is impossible. But not with God. With God, all things are possible. You see, neither salvation nor sanctification can be achieved. It was never intended to be something that we earn. It is to be received just as a small child. Let me repeat that. Salvation and sanctification were never intended to be achieved, but to be received. By God's standard, we can't earn either of these gifts. He gives them freely according to this good news. For God so loved the world. that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him, whoever believes in him, shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Jesus loved the rich young ruler. He loved him enough to challenge him, not to condemn him, but to challenge him. The same is true for you and for me. He loves us enough to challenge us, not to condemn, but to challenge. So the encouragement this morning is to run. Don't walk. Run with urgency into his presence. Kneel before him and give him the reverence and the honor that he is due. You can refer to him as good teacher, but be sure you use the right word when referring to him because he is more than just pleasant and kind. He is full of celebration and glory and the fullness of God that we see in the creation. Also be willing as you come into his presence to release that one thing What is that one thing for you? The one thing that stands between you and the fullness that God has intended for you to experience with him. Similar to the rich young ruler, there was one thing. He did everything else so right. There was one thing that was holding him back. There was one thing that was keeping him from enjoying and experiencing the fullness that God had intended. What is your one thing? Is it forgiveness? Is it unforgiveness? Is it addiction? Is it trauma? Is it fear? Is it guilt? Is it brokenness? Is it despair? If you would take time just for a moment, either right now or any time moving forward, and just ask that question of God, would you please show me what is the one thing? And as you do that, realize what may seem completely impossible for you to relinquish, for you to give up, for you to overcome, 
for, for you to be victorious over whatever it is, nothing that is impossible for you, nothing is impossible for God. All things, all things are possible. Thankfully, gratefully, graciously, our salvation and our sanctification will never, ever depend on our goodness because he alone is good. Thanks be to God.